0: Hello and welcome to Steady State Podcast. We are really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing these stories about the humanity of our sport, we're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates real life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast.
1: Sit ready. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, a spotlight on East Bay Rowing Club. This wide-ranging roundtable chat features EBRC President Denise Martini, DEI Committee Co-Chair Carla Jordan, and Aaron Cafaro, Head Coach of Oakland Tech Men's Varsity Program. Through recruitment, scholastic programming, and intentional DEI outreach, EBRC looks different than even just a year ago, better representing the community it supports. EBRC coaches and longstanding members are changing too, learning and engaging in new ways to foster a truly inclusive boathouse. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast, or ask your smart speaker to play Steady State Podcast.
0: This episode is made possible in part by Concept2 and Lake Washington Rowing Club. Become a sponsor for as little as $65 at steadystatenetwork.com slash sponsors. Do you remember rowing with wooden oars or Macon blades? Concept2 brings over 45 years of innovation to the sport of rowing. Their newest comp blade is a smaller size blade that feels lightweight, efficient, and stable. Unlock speed with a comp blade available in both sweep and skull. Find out more at
1: concept2.com comp. And for folks out West, Lake Washington Rowing Club is full steam ahead, organizing the 43rd Head of the Lake Regatta. Set to take place in Seattle on Sunday, November 6, 2022, it's the last big head race of the season. LWRC hopes to see you there. For more information, visit headofthelake.org. All right, let's get started with this week's episode. Today, we're talking with brothers Pete and Dick Dreisigacker, co-founders of Concept2. Their oars and ergs are nearly
0: synonymous with rowing, but did you know that it all started in the early 1970s when they were just a couple of guys messing around with carbon fiber and fiberglass in a kitchen, hoping to develop a better oar? And to keep training through cold winters in Vermont, nail an old bike to the floor and pull on the free end of a chain, voila, the mass market indoor rower was born.
2: My name is Dick Dreisigacker
3: co-founder of Concept2. I'm uh, Peter treisek also uh, brother of Dick, and uh, we started Concept2 together.
0: So every episode, we put our guests in the hot seat for a lightning round of questions to help our listeners get to know you. Now, we all love rowing, so let's get started uh, and find some common ground.
1: Let's go in this order. We'll have Peter and then Dick. Port or starboard?
3: Port. Starboard.
1: Bow seat or stroke
0: seat?
3: Uh, I'm in the bow, port bow, most of the
2: time. Starboard stroke in the pair. Yeah.
1: Sprint race or head race?
3: Well, recently it's been mostly head races just because that's what masters tend to do.
2: In the pair, we used to do masters,
3: you know, thousand meters.
2: But not so
0: much these days.
2: But we haven't raced the pair in a long time. We haven't raced the pair in a while, but...
1: Do you prefer head race or sprint race? Like, what's your preference if you had to choose?
3: Boy. I kind of like the 2K.
0: Dick, what about you?
2: Either way, you know, good time doing both. It's different.
0: Uh, unisuit or tank and trow, whatever distance you're rowing.
3: I don't think I own a unisuit. <laughs> <Yeah>, no. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever had one on. <laughs> yeah yeah. the uni the uni suits came after
2: my time
1: oh this will be fun um barefoot or shoes on the erg?
3: shoes shoes definitely shoes definitely shoes he yep. says
1: interesting yeah. uh, i'm a barefoot person
0: hmm. <laughs> uh, calories watts or splits for you on the monitor
3: splits so meters just meters, meters. Well, well, Splits. Yeah. Splits meters. Having said that, sometimes if I get kind of stuck, I haven't done this in a while, but I will switch to watts just so I don't realize how much I'm not improving. (laughs) You you get like a whole fresh start. If if you're used to the meters and then you go to watch say, oh, that's not too bad, you know?
0: Yeah. And do you ever sit down on the ERG and not look at the monitor? I've heard so many people are like, I'm just sick of it. I'm just going to put some tape over it so I don't have to look at it. Always
2: look at it. Always Always look at it. Always look at it. Always look at it. Always look at it.
1: Our coach made us have the split, but I would put electrical tape over the split and I did everything by time and meters, go 500 meters in two minutes, you know what your split is, right? So I was like, and it keeps my mind busy to do all the math, you know?
2: <laughs> well, when we, when we test oars on the water, we always cover the, um, speed, the speed meter, we only look at uh, stroke count and stroke rate. And distance? Well, we only go for a certain number of strokes because you can't have a half a stroke in the mix if you're testing ores. You have to have more resolution than
3: that. Because the yeah. stroke, you have a fast part of the stroke and a slow part. But to be fair, we tape over the result until the whole workout's done yeah. and the, the six pieces or whatever with different ores. And then we ceremoniously take the tape off and it's like Christmas, you get to see what you did. See which, oh. how it went.
1: Yeah. Nice, nice. I love that. Next question is uh, best place
2: to row.
3: I have to give a nod to
2: Crasbury. Crasberry. It was like perfectly glass this morning, 63 oh. degrees at six o'clock in the morning.
0: For those of us who haven't been there, can you describe what your water is like there?
2: It's um so it's Hasmer Pond, it's 3 3k, 3000 meters. It has a narrow spot in the middle. You can kind of get a pretty good straightaway of 1500 meters at the north end and 1000 meters at the south end. And if you don't have to follow a traffic pattern, you can almost go straight through. You have to kind of do a little bit of zigzag, but it's it's beautiful, especially in the morning. It's always calm.
3: But I can tell <laughs> you on a little more r- romantic note, most mornings w- when we go out to test oars, I guess our testing workout ends up being about an hour. And at the end of the hour, you can still see the bubbles from the first pass that you did. <laughs> what? No, it's just beautiful. It's- oh. Bubbles on black water. It's just great.
0: Oh, cool. I'd love to see that. All right, Tara, we've got one more question to wrap up rapid fire. Should we hit it? (laughs) Yeah, totally. All right. For both of you, coffee before or after a row?
3: Both.
2: (laughs) I usually go after. Okay, so
1: great. Thank you so much. Now we know each other a little bit more and I know we're going to make people really jealous and want to go to Craftsbury next summer for sure. Um, So we got to ask you, what are you guys working on in your rowing right now? In your own personal rowing, what are you working on?
3: Well, we just uh, re-entered the uh, head of the Charles. And so uh, I guess usually my own personal rowing is getting ready for the next masters race I end up typically in a year rowing like two head races the, the San Diego race and then out of the Charles and uh, the Charles we've been rowing it at eight since um, like 70, 79 nine okay 79 and I would say it's been the same boat but a lot of the guys I think four are the same. Original four, and we've you know, we've run through some people, but it's basically a block of guys that we rode with every year.
1: And where do you guys sit in that eight? Do you have your same seats? Yeah, every year as What's much two? as
3: possible. Yeah. Where do you sit? Seven, six,
2: six, and seven. Six. Oh, I love six.
1: <laughs> Stroke bodyguard. I love six. <laughs> I'll be rowing in three seat at the Charles and the Directors Cup, and Rachel's oh. going to be coxing. It's a, a director's cup mixed eight challenge. Sure.
0: So getting ready for Boston. One thing that I've always been curious about with masters rowers, really folks who have been rowing for a long time is, is there something specific that you're working on? Even though you've been rowing as long as you have, is there something when you get in a boat, you say, I'm really working on this today, or do you just get in and you just row at this point?
3: I think it's a matter of getting in yeah. and just trying to disappear in the groove. <laughs> yeah.
0: I like that.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, because it's different. Single. I. You know. I would roll in the morning in a single. Um. And an eight. You know, we don't. We don't really practice. You know, our eight that we've wrote every year for forty some odd years. Um. But the idea is at this point we used to have one practice before the race because everyone's scattered all over the place we just practice going up to the starting line everyone's mm-hmm. getting all over 70 plus eight so the idea is when you get in the boat just try to be try to be smooth try to be together try to be long if you can you know try to get get your body working in, in a nice even stroke so we have a limited time to try to pull it together. So it's not like we're practicing that boat every day. It's a matter of just trying to get it together by the time we cross the starting line. I was going to say, you're going to say the finish line? (laughs) Sometimes that happens that way. Um, Do you have have it together? No, usually as we're rowing out, the boat just feels awful. But then, sure. you know, when the coxswain says, okay, here we go, we're going we're, we're gonna to start. And then it just it, it clicks and it, and it feels pretty good.
1: Have you had the same coxswain for a lot of those years or you've been switching up coxswains?
2: We had one coxswain for a long time, but, but he passed away. You know, we've mm-hmm. lost a few of the original boat. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Larry Gluckman was in the original boat. You know, he mm-hmm. passed away a couple years ago. Um, and and so since then, we've mostly had another coxswain. Actually, it was a, a guy who coxed Larry's boats when he was at Trinity.
0: Well, good luck to you this year in Boston. We'll be there as well. We're going out on Sunday, like Tara said, for the Director's Challenge Mixed 8. And same deal. We're getting in a boat with people that we have not been in a boat with before. And there's something you guys know about that, right? You just uh, you just get in. You see how... Uh, how did you describe it, Peter? You get into the fold. You disappear. Well, you just
3: in. want to disappear. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, if, it's, yeah. if there's too much going on, then you know it's not working right. one of our coxswains that we had early on a long time I think he he felt that it was his duty to just yell and tear into the other (laughs) coxswains and and, uh, to be honest it was so uh disruptive Mm. when he would do that which is awful
1: so he'd like harass the coxswains as you're going as you're passing them
3: yeah kind of yeah he would he would he would (laughs) just I have one
0: (laughs) that's funny I have one really clear memory I was coxing a bow for a ballad four and we are charging up on the boat in front of us and so I'm staring at the stroke seat of the boat in front of us and (laughs) you know and then they have a bow loader so their coxswain can't hear me as I'm yelling give way (laughs) you know (laughs) Anyway, we
1: eventually passed them and it was I like the look of the there's probably a look of fear on that stroke's yes, face. Yes. Like, so much- They're coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
3: well the the
2: whole the whole etiquette or non-etiquette of passing is yeah. you know, Charles is kind of an interesting thing in itself.
1: My friend um, Irena got uh disqualified. She got DQ'd yeah. because she basically ran someone into a bridge. She's sure. a very intense uh Uh and she just ran someone in the bridge. She just said, get out of my way.
2: And a lot of times, you know, if the two boats, the, the passing boat and the one being passed, if they get too aggressive, both boats lose time, you know. Mm-hmm. Instead, they could both just kind of do the right thing at the right time and every everyone would be better off. But coxswains yeah. can get aggressive and mm-hmm. to the detriment mm-hmm. of both,
3: I was just looking at Rachel's face there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in my mind, I'm yes. I had um, this uh, this reel of of memories about coxing and being assertive slash aggressive, and the notion of like learning how to do. I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but like learning how to pass, learning how and when to be assertive. Um, you know, times that I've definitely been too assertive. Probably the last time actually I was on the Charles, I was super assertive and it caused a little bit about a tangling of oars. And there's a mm. whole story that came out of that. Um, <laughs> so yes. Anyway, that's really a whole other conversation about,
1: about <laughs> another day. We want to find out how this whole thing started, not just concept two, but you two as rowers. So we want to dig a little bit into your family growing up. Was it a sports culture in your family? Were you playing sports as kids? And what was going on in your lives when you found rowing?
3: Yeah, I think we we're we're always doing sports. I mean always doing sports.
2: And I actually, when I went to college, went to Brown, you know, I was playing football, I played football and high school, played football for two years in college, but during those two years, freshman year at Brown, I took up rowing as well. There were a couple of guys, or at least one guy there that was doing both football and and rowing, and he kind of, uh, well, it was Alvin, Alvin Mosier. He's still, um, he's, he's really been a spearhead of rowing in Rhode Island ever since, really. So he got me um, yeah, another guy got me going on rowing um, that spring, freshman year. And I got hooked on it. And, you know, I said, boy, who needs this football? The rowing is a lot more fun. And I'm really kind of, even though I was probably 30 pounds heavier when I was playing football, but I kind of trimmed down to rowing weight and I started to really figure that that was my sport. Um, and then after that, after college I wound up having a job in Philadelphia so I started growing at vesper with the guys there and uh, you know doing uh, national team stuff what was it 70 71 72 and then meanwhile well I'll, I can let Pete pick up on this but I wound up going out and coaching at Stanford and Pete was just finishing up his um
3: Studies out there. I also went into uh, athletics in college, but it was track and field. I was a discus thrower and shot putter in uh, college. And uh, as a as a graduate student, when Dick started uh, coaching out there, I was no longer eligible to do my thing. So he said, "Why don't you come down to the boathouse? We'll get in a pair and, and teach you how to row." Uh, prior to that, I had been in a boat once in Philadelphia. I went to visit Dick as a undergraduate and, and thought I could do this. It looked fun. So he sent me out in a tiny little single. And it, I thought I was going to panic. You know, it, it was terrible. It was terrible. But I did manage to get back into the dock, which was, that was then I put the oar away for like two or three years. Didn't get back <laughs> into it since. And, uh, so then back in California, when he was coaching, we had more time. I was a graduate student. Uh, and then I had a job out there. And so we would do, we'd go and train before work. And, and that was probably 74, 5, and 6, that range. And that's really when we started uh, playing around with oars. Mm. Because we thought we would, uh, it's something we thought we could do. And... Um, there had been a lot of uh, technology put into boats at that point in time. This is like mid-70s.
1: So can we back up to sure. when you very first tried rowing? Um, uh, Dick, tell us what about rowing got you hooked. Like, Do you remember those first strokes and the first time in the boat? and And what was it about yeah. being on the water and everything?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I always... <clears throat> You know, kind of like being on the water because we, we did a lot of sailing as mm-hmm. younger kids. Lived near Long Island Sound, near New Haven. I don't know what it was about rowing. I mean, rowing's a very different sport because it's, it's a race, but it's also a team. You know, it's not a game sport where you have a team. And it's not a race where it's individual. It's a... It's a team race, a true team race. Not I mean you have relay races, but you're still an individual in a relay race. But how many sports? I mean, there are a few others, you know, there's you know, canoeing and kayaking, they have doubles and have four kayak, but it's they don't have that in college, so you can't, you know, <clears throat> it's not quite a system. But it's it's very unusual in that way. And it and it's also very um very captivating in that way, because you're relying on other people uh, to do their part and to do it together, exactly together. And then the other thing, of course, which I didn't realize at the time, it is sort of a lifelong activity. You know, you can do it, you know, do it when you're my age, you can do it older. When I graduated from college, I thought at that point, talking 1969, most people just went on, got a job. That was it. I think more people, well, there's more, you know, people that are rowing after college, whether it's competitively or recreationally or or picking it up after college for the first time, because it is something you can do, you know, for the rest of your life, really. So all those aspects, I think, all come together. And in the beginning, it was probably more of this sort of sort of team team race and the synchronizing of feeling like all all the people are working together and the idea that you know you just work and work and work to perfect it you never really do but you can always keep trying to perfect yeah it.
1: Yeah, that sort of uh, eternal search for, for, for perfection, the eternal, right. the, the sort of the journey of it. I think it appeals to a certain type of person. Obviously, you know, the perfectionist is probably the single scholar, and the the journeyman. You know, there's definitely people who are, are appealed uh, to different aspects of the sport. What about you? I mean, obviously, your your big brother is is doing this rowing thing, and and he's trying to get you hooked on it too. What was it that really sealed the deal for you?
3: you know, the discus is very similar in terms of the looking for perfection. Mm. And uh, because, you know, you you spend all this time out training and practicing and and you go to an event and it's all over in, in a matter of fractions of a second, you know. But it's a feeling of getting it all connected and being right that uh, makes it go. And it's the same discus or a boat or a crew it's, it's very similar you know, in strange ways
0: hmm. the technique of it all
3: yeah. yeah
1: yeah I've been talking to some high school students who uh, want to transition to rowing and they're swimmers and I said well that's great you know you're good in water you like monotonous repetitive technically <laughs> precise things and but these are kids who are missing that family a community piece and that interdependence piece that I think uh, Dick was talking about the that that synchronicity piece and and that's why I really love the eight I love that that dynamic and um I'm with you guys I'm the, the pair is my favorite
3: hundred <laughs> percent yeah the thing about the pair is though you you sometimes wonder how does it all work yeah
1: you know? mm-hmm. yeah it's like magic and fairy dust a little bit you
0: yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> now do you ever uh get into a pair with someone besides your brother do you say i'm going to go out in a different boat today with a different rower and see what happens
3: yeah yeah um recently actually doing some ore testing and some of the guys uh in the shop are starboard so we'd go out and it's you know it it definitely is a whole different animal when you are just going out with somebody it doesn't disappear, you know, <laughs> if you know what I mean? It's just, you're fighting it the whole no.
1: time. <laughs> so when Absolutely. people apply for a job at Concept2, do they have to establish their reporter at starboard at that, that is point, <laughs> is that on the application?
3: <laughs> well, I wish actually, I wish we were, uh, it's interesting because uh, certainly in the early years, we were kind of up in Vermont, and it was very difficult to find people with rowing experience to, uh, to, to be involved. We probably have more people with rowing background now than we ever have.
0: Steady Safe Podcast is made possible with listener support. Today, we're sending a big thank you to our newest Patreon crew members, Denise M. and Stephanie M., If you want to join our lineup, find out about our Patreon support levels and benefits at patreon.com slash network. In two, we're back with Concept2 co-founders Pete and Dick Dreisigacker. That's one, two. So this is actually a great segue because we we wanted to talk to you about starting the business and you've talked about being student athletes and you've talked about moving on after school and training with the national tra- team, training to make the Olympics. Um, you know, you're coming from an engineering background using equipment that you, I guess, think is not, you know, it's a little bit subpar. There can definitely be something better out there. Do you remember kind of having the light bulb and saying, I think maybe we can make something better in terms of oars?
2: I think while we were out in Palo Alto um, to, you know, together, it's kind of like we got reunited because Pete and I are four years apart. So that's a big gap. You know, he moves up to high school, I moved up to college. So, you know, we were we were kind of a little bit separate for a while, but we got sort of reunited out in um, out in Palo Alto. When I was coaching and and Pete was at graduate school, in fact, we took some classes together because I, I took a um, uh, master's degree when I was coaching there. We actually took a couple of classes together, and one of them was um, starting your own business, writing a business plan, and um, which wasn't about rowing equipment at all was actually about pete was doing this product design master's project but um oddly enough the the business in the business plan was called concept two you know that was the original concept two and the Mm -hmm. reason we chose that name was in in pete's project he had these different options concept one concept two and they were labeled concept one two three four and the one that he selected to do his master's project on, it was what we did our, our um, starting the business on, you know, okay. the business plan. So um, we were kind of thinking at that point after that class that we took together that maybe there was a future in starting a product design business. Uh, we weren't sure exactly what it would be at that point. I was still doing the master's. That would have been like the spring of um, 1974. So we did the class. We did the business plan, filed it away. And then the next couple of years, we were starting to work together on different things. We kind of decided, well, when all this is done, we'll start a, a business and do product design work. And one of the first products could be you know, oars using composite material because really it had, not oars were still wood, mm-hmm. you know, basically. And oars were kind of this accessory for rowing. You know, no one, the boat builders, I don't think really liked making oars, but they had to because people needed oars to row their boats. Um, I don't know, that may be an overstatement, but that's kind of what we were theorizing, I think, at the time. So, you know, we started tinkering with oars. And that was going to be our sort of bread and butter to put food on the table and and pay the rent when we started this yet-to-be-named business, you know, Breizagacher Brothers Incorporated or something like that.
1: Who was going to be your target audience at that point? Were you targeting national team or collegiate or who were you thinking about? Oh,
3: everybody, everybody. And Initially, we were trying to make like a secret weapon so that we would have them. And because we, we tried uh, tried out in the 76 uh, Six pair of trials, yeah. and we had these oars that we had cobbled together in our apartment, which were wooden oars that we had cut the, the last four feet off of the blade end. And we created a, a lightweight blade and little piece of shaft at the end. And so this was gonna be our, our secret weapon to uh, swoop in and, and show the world what we could do. I would say that the the only thing that was uh, unique about them was that they had the lightweight blade. It was the same shape and everything else as, as typical blades were at the time. Um, and they didn't make us go fast enough to win the trials. But.
0: Was it controversial at the time that you showed up with these newfangled oars?
3: Frankenstein
1: oars? I love that. <laughs> it was Frankenstein
2: That's a good, <laughs> it's a good term, Frankenstein
1: Yeah, you'd get along oh. well with Susan Kinney at Lake Washington Rowing Club. She likes to Frankenstein boats together. <laughs>
3: <laughs> controversial? I, it wasn't yeah. really controversial. I think um, people noticed them, certainly. Uh, they were... They would have been more controversial if they were a little more finished looking, I think, and looked more like a super-duper weapon, but they were, you know, they, they would definitely look like something- Definitely, sort of, definitely prototypes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So for people that don't know, you guys were literally making these out of like your kitchen, right? And, and the back of a truck and, You could do that because you had some knowledge coming from an engineering background and you decide we're going to start messing around with carbon fiber, but you were not mass producing these things yet. How did that whole process start? And at what point did you think, okay, we have a product that's coming together. We are going to be the ones to, to manufacture these, or was there ever a time where you thought we can work with another company to
3: manufacture these? Yeah at the time we only had 4 of these ores, actually we'd piece together ones and um, and we'd researched the idea of of getting components made by another company uh, but that we would put them together because we knew we knew the market we were friends with most of the coaches around at the time and, and the you know high level people who would use them so we thought that we'd be the best people to actually put them together and uh, get them around. But we were looking for other sources of the components just because it is pretty technical, and need equipment and that kind of stuff. And we had some good leads, but um, we ended up setting up in our barn to, uh, to do the carbon fiber work ourselves Piece things together so we could actually make a better real product.
1: So, who was making oars at this point? Like you said, it was an accessory that just came with the boat. And was it just tulips or spoons at that point for the blade designs? In the
2: beginning, we tried to make it as much like wood as possible. You know, the blade was pretty much the same dimensions where well, we had different dimensions you could order. I think the, the bigger thing was sort of the weight lighter weight, durability and um, the fact that it was made in components. so if you broke a blade, you don't have to throw the whole thing away and the, the handle was separate if the handle wore out, you could replace the handle. so yeah. you know everything was kind of interchangeable and because we made these components we could have these components and then assemble them to different specifications, this was before things were adjustable but At least we could assemble them to different sizes and with different stiffness of shafts, which we could control fairly closely, more so than wood. So it was a big improvement in consistency and durability and uh, lighter weight. And in fact, in fact, they were still quite a bit heavier than what the oars are now, but they were also a lot lighter than the wood at the time. Oars have improved immensely over the time that we started making. Our first yeah. ores are just sort of seem sort of ancient right now to see some of the old oars.
1: When you're thinking about tackling and making a more efficient oar, there's all those different components to consider. There's the shaft, there's the blade, and then there's the handles. And I think for every rower, we have our preferences, especially when it comes to handles. And when you guys introduced Innovation after innovation after innovation, were you tackling it in some sort of order? Like, first, let's get it light. Then let's get a good blade face. Then let's address the handle. Or was it more of a sort of organic process where it was all inclusive? Because I know when you introduced the split handle, that was really, we were just kind of blown away. We were like, okay, now you're actually telling us where our hands are supposed to be. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) That's great. Thank you.
2: I think it was, I think it was organic you know, it was just what seemed like it needed improvement, just sort of discovering certain area that might need improvement. And of course, the big one was, you know, the blade in, in uh, 91, 1991, going from the basic Macon blade shapes to the big blade. That was the that that was a crazy year. Well, ninety two is a crazy year. Ninety one was the development year.
3: It first became controversial.
1: Oh
2: yay! There became, it is. Yeah, ninety two was very controversial.
1: Yeah, how did you know you were really onto something, and you were you were going to become essentially a, a standard in in
2: competitive blades? It was pretty interesting because ninety one, the summer of ninety one, was an interesting year because. Um, this guy Bart Gulong, had this um, speed meter made called the Speed Boss. You know, some people, depending on their age, remember the Speed Boss. It was a sort of it was sort of bulky, but it was the first um, speed meter. Um, and he had a prototype of it at that time. And we were telling him what we were doing, and he said, "Well, here I have this prototype. You guys can use it." Well, that totally Change the game of testing because we could go out and test. We go out in a pair. We go in a single, and go out and set this thing for x number of strokes. You know, you get 10 strokes to start to get up to speed, and then for the next 40 strokes or so, you, you get the speed. And we could do that, and we could change oars back forth every piece and get it quite accurate. And I think. After a a little bit, once we started evolving this ore, the shape, and we could change stuff on the dock. You know, we'd bring a saw down and we'd cut a little bit off and do this stuff. But we could actually see, and, of course, we were younger then, so we could test better, (laughs) you know, at faster speed and whatnot. So, um, you know, we could see that we were going – going significantly faster and consistently faster with these uh, big blades. And they were easier to row with. I think part of it was just that it was easier to row with. Um, And then, uh, of course, it didn't take off right away. People thought, you're crazy. But a few uh, coaches got them uh, in the fall of 91 and interestingly enough those schools came out came out in the spring college season you know doing much better than everyone had expected so that that spring during college season we would get a call on saturday night from a coach saying you've got to get me a set of those new oars by the next race or the guys aren't going to, don't want to (laughs) race because, I mean, there was a psychological thing too. You know, you get up on the line with this other boat and after a few weekends, you know, Oh God, Dartmouth has got these weird looking blades and they crushed so-and-so the last, last weekend, you know, how are we going to be able to row against them? So it was just a crazy spring. You know, we were just going nuts making, trying to get people over as quickly that, that created a lot of controversy, the combination of the psychological issue and, the you know, it actually was a difference, uh, clearly, um, you know, just created a, a big rush and people wanted to ban the blade and whatnot. Hmm. But that never totally got traction because nobody knew on what grounds do you mm-hmm. ban All it was literally was it was so simple it was literally the same mold and we just cut a different shape out of it you know Mm -hmm. that's how simple it was to do since then we've made different molds with little subtle changes but you know that original big blade was probably the biggest jump and it was just strictly Mm -hmm. how we cut the shape of the blade
0: so in 91 you've already reached a point where you know I think that your oars and blades are becoming pretty ubiquitous. But oh, yeah. if we could if we could step back, let's say to you know, a, a couple years into you designing and starting to sell oars, you know, Tara and I both have a lot of experience with running small businesses and wearing all of the hats, right? We're the designers, we're the people actually doing the work, we're creating invoices, we're interacting with our potential clients. At what point did your business grow from being the two of you to starting to bring on some other folks? And then can you tell us about that team that you've built at Concept2 and how that drives innovation?
2: It was a long, long stretched out period of what you're talking about there. But I think our first employee was 19... 77 or 78, maybe. <clears throat> 78 for sure. Yeah, originally, we thought that we really wouldn't have any employees. We'd just make, you know, a couple hours a day. Like I said before, put food on the table. Um, and then we'd tinker and work on other products that, you know, either we would make or have made or farm out to other companies. You know, sort of product design. But, People started to do well with the oars in 78 and we got more orders needed to hire people. So now we're sort of taking off more in this sort of manufacturing track rather than the design and engineering track. Although it's still, you know, we're still doing design and engineering on on our own products. And then um, for the
3: the first year plus, it was... uh, well, actually three of us my my wife was involved as well um, and you know it was slow going we we didn't do things very quickly we essentially puttered along if it's making one set here one set there um, but then late seventies we had uh, started hiring people it was not really a smooth running you know operation meant for creating innovation at that point but it was getting some work done and early 80s we moved out of our old house and barn system into a a, a legitimate place industrial park building that we built and I think that's when it started to um, move into more of a an organization that you could really look at and say this is how it's going to be creating things. We get started with some good people.
1: Did you, uh, you know, you said early on, earlier in the interview, that um, you didn't have a lot of rowers working for you in the beginning, and you have more rowers working for you now. Was there anything about rowing and that concept of synchronicity and and like the rowers' code, if you will, about how things work and how we work together? Did you try to infuse any of that into the business? Did you help them understand rowing and say this is what we're working for is to help people? work in sync and to be powerful as eight people as one, you know, one heartbeat kind of thing. Were you preaching the gospel of rowing in the beginning, or did you just say, let's just make some wars?
3: I would say when we got big enough, there was always kind of a a family feel to the group of people who we had working with us. And we always, um, I think we tried to instill that we were working towards one goal, Um, I think in terms of both to compensate people well and make sure that um, everybody had that same idea of being together. We've used that image of all being in the same boat numerous times over the last 40 years. And even now,
2: as we've gotten bigger, we are very much a team structure um, it's not sort of this hierarchy of, you know, chain of command type thing. Um,
1: it must yeah. be really exciting for your employees to see their oars. Like I saw my oars in the oars that I helped make in Barcelona. I helped make those oars in Rio. It must be so thrilling to see it on the, on the international stage or to hear feedback and have a team come back and say, we just won pack 12. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, that's got to be a good feeling in the in the office or the warehouse setting where uh, are you uh, right along uh, with all the rest of us celebrating when your oars win gold medals?
3: <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that's definitely a, a, uh, yeah. an interest in, in rowing at, at the high level among people who you wouldn't think would be interested in rowing at the high yeah. level. You know, everybody oh, yeah. is interested that yeah. that uh, you know we. I mean, many. <laughs> yeah, many people that are working for us really, you
2: know, are local. You know, and they haven't necessarily they haven't traveled the world, and and some of them have had a chance to travel because of of you know the oars, you know, going out and doing ore service at regattas and whatnot, but. um you know, it's a, I, I think it's been a big deal for a lot of people that, you know, coming out of Northern Vermont, Morrisville, you know, have gone all over the world. Yeah. Um, in, in the lobby, we have this map that has pins that all the, well, we used to, I don't know if it's been kept up to date recently, but there's pins in all the places that we've sold equipment, but it pretty much covered the whole world.
3: Wow. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if either of you have been visited the um, when we do a like an ore service. Oh, yeah. At the regattas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and um, it's been a disappointment in the last couple of years because of no regattas that people from the shop haven't been able to go to those events because it's something that's really people look forward to uh, signing up to be um, a traveling person.
1: Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, we'll, we're actually going to be doing at least because of concept Two's sponsorship of the podcast, we're going to be doing at least uh, some broadcasting from your concept Two booth at the head of the Charles on Saturday. Oh, <laughs> we'll be there Instagram living so, and cheering you on as you go by. Thank you for sharing all of that, by the way, you know, both Rachel and I have started businesses and, and we're solopreneurs as, as we're called. So um, it's it's fun to think about it, uh, bringing rowing into in sort of a family environment, and then making something so uh, so meaningful and impactful. Uh, we have a listener question: Who has a faster five k on the erg? <laughs> <clears throat>
3: Depends on when you ask. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, uh, boy we, we did a remote. What did we do?
2: We did some remote stuff. Yeah. But it does it does depend. Pete's Pete's probably Pete in theory, and I think he probably can beat me now because as you get older and you get into your mid seventies, the the decline it steepens mm-hmm. or your time goes up. Yeah. The opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on how you look at it.
3: But um and we used yeah. to we used to do like a, the uh, crash bees crash and bees. be in the same heat, but be like you know, many machines apart and yeah, come, was... in, come in come in you know, tenths of a second difference.
1: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, yeah, that's yeah. great. Oh. But I,
3: I do think actually with the more recent two Ks, uh, mm-hmm. I think I beat them.
1: <laughs> we also have a question related to erging. Um, and that's from. Do you know the guys at Science of Rowing, where they curate scientific articles about rowing and training? And his question, their questions from Science Rowing was, "How does the monitor calculate watts, splits, and all of its variables?" Do you know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and
0: then you put it in an easy to understand. I'm
2: trying, Yeah, well, that's the point. It. Um, I th- I think the key to the monitor is that. Um, because rowing is cyclical, you pull and then you recover. And when you recover, the flywheel is just spinning freely. Okay. and it and as it spins freely, it gradually slows down. So down by
3: the fan, air
2: dry. Yeah, because of the air friction. Just like a boat slows down because of the water. Well, it's some the boat slows down because of water mostly, but also a little bit of air. In the in the erg, it's just Spinning down because of air to simulate the combination of the water and the air. So, from that, the rate of decay of that um, RPM, we can calculate the drag math, you know, and from that, we can calculate the sort of drag factor, you call it. And from that drag factor, we can then determine how much uh, value to attach to a revolution of the flywheel. And and so that's constantly changes a little bit, not very much, but but it does, I mean, it's changed a lot if you change damper, <laughs> you know. If you push the damper up to 10, then one revolution flywheel is worth a lot, worth more meters than if you push it down. And so, we're able to constantly pick up any difference in that drag. So, so meters is the key, and then everything, you know, is calculated from that. Meters, pace, watts, calories. Calories, of course, calories kind of an estimate. The only way you can really do calories is to, is to you know, collect the gas and see how much right. oxygen you've used, because that determines. How much oxygen you're using is determining how many calories you're earning. So mm-hmm. calories is really just an estimate. For some people, it's a gauge. Now, CrossFit mm-hmm. is picked up on calories because calorie in su- is almost like a rep. And mm-hmm. CrossFit's into reps, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Everything's right. reps. And a calorie is, is close to a rep. So they've, they've kind of bought on to the whole calorie thing, the CrossFit competitions. I'm actually
0: glad that you mentioned CrossFit I wanted to ask you, you know, so today indoor rowing has really exploded besides CrossFit using it. There are, you know, there's crash bees, which started really with you guys way back in the day. And now there are countries around the world that have their indoor rowing championships. There's world indoor rowing championships, but way back in early 81, you know, the story goes that you nail an upside down bike to the floor and you yank the chain and you say, aha, I have this new machine (laughs) for winter training.
2: Yeah, that's, that's correct. You know,
0: (laughs) and what, what did the market look like then? Like, I think a lot of us think Either A, this thing's been around for forever and B, nothing existed before that. But I think that there was something on the market. Can you tell us a little bit about what people were doing for indoor winter training at that time and what led you to have this aha moment in your barn with your bicycle?
3: Yeah, well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's been rowing machines for a long time. There was a, a rowing machine in mean, the Titanic.
1: Did the, did the gamut precede the concept too? Hmm.
3: Yes, Okay, because I've done a
1: gamut, but I've done a gamut on a concept too. Mm. A gamut attached to a concept too. Mm. Uh
3: Aha, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I know that one. Yeah. (laughs) There was the gamut that was used by some schools and national teams. A lot of the use was for testing
2: as opposed to training. training.
3: So that was probably the most popular one in boathouses. And then for the kind of the Rowing machine that you would think of in in someone's home was uh, kind of the pre-core, you know, pivoting arm, two piston shock absorber kind of things.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Right,
3: right, okay. That nobody in the rowing community used for obvious reasons. So that was really the two options available. Uh, There was also some European models that were more similar to a gamut in terms of it, their specific use for testing and stuff. And something in Australia that was mm-hmm. also a flywheel based, but a big heavy flywheel. At the point of time of nailing the bike on the floor and pulling the chain, I think our idea was to, to make a rowing team appropriate machine for home use. So it was kind of like, running the, the spot between the gamut and the shock absorbers.
2: And and for training rather than just testing. for Training, right. Because yeah, the so other the other machines were thousands of dollars. So you know schools didn't have eight of them or ten of them, you know, they had maybe two, a port and a starboard if they were set up as sweep. Um so really it was only only testing so it was always this uh sort of this horror show when you get on the earth because you're put on the spot and you didn't really know your pace that well it's just it was a lot of carnage on those guys
1: there was actually a vintage gamut at the university of washington boathouse in in the conover shell house and this i remember this former collegiate guy you know in his 50s or something I mean he looked at it and he was like I'm getting hives like looking at it because (laughs) he was like that there was one machine and they would line us up and you had to test on that thing and you've never even been on it before barely done you know I wanted to ask you as a learn to row coach if you were teaching someone to row using the rowing machine what's the best screen to use for a learn to row class I I usually put it on force curve because they're visual learners, sometimes.
3: I I am with you on that force curve. Yeah. I've, I've done a lot of uh, in the past with uh, CrossFit people. You know, going to a CrossFit event and people would come up, big burly people, men and women, and say, you know, how can I go faster? And and put them on the force curve and and say, you see how lumpy that force curve is? Try to make, you know, make <laughs> there's the high spot and you know keep it up and. Uh, they're just amazed that because they didn't know it was there but mm-hmm. they're also amazed as to how lucky their their power was they we they see it. it yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> when we watch crossfit competitions we see it we're like Ooh. yeah
3: yeah yeah and uh you know that is a that is a great learn to row tool one thing on that force curve at, when we were um first programming that we were hoping that it would be, uh, you know, it's a small screen, so it's a little tiny thing, and the resolution isn't great, and I suspect that if you are are trying to do a fine-tune your force curve to national team, that you really want something bigger with more resolution, but I think the um, the curve on the monitor does great for a learn-to-row.
1: Oh, Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a game changer for people, especially when they're learning to row or checking themselves like, oh, okay, there's a way I can check myself if I'm not feeling it. Um, When you guys got into COVID though, we know there was a big explosion in home exercise equipment. And I know from talking to Judy and, and Meredith, especially in your marketing department that there was, it was kind of a problem because there was a big backlog uh, that ended up happening with uh, not only supply chain, but just the massive amount of orders. And so how do you think COVID affected your business and and how people uh, use the rowing machine?
3: Well, it certainly sent a big bubble through the system because mm. we were totally shut down for six weeks. So nothing went out for six weeks. And uh, that put us in the hole. And then on top of that, they inflated... Uh, Demand yeah. and it, it really put us in a bigger. But um, the second part of the question, I think a lot of people took to rowing in their homes that uh, hadn't done it in the past. So I think there's a big population that uh, took it up. The pandemic was was interesting mm-hmm. because of both
2: high demand got behind because of the shutdown. Supply chain issues. We were sort of looking way out in terms of supply and seeing that, oh, we're not going to be able to get enough of these chips to put the monitors together. We're going to have to get an alternate chip. So we got to have guys do development to be able to use this other chip. I mean, there was a lot of extra costs. Shipping went through the roof, you know, shipping, in inbound shipping from, from from various places that we get parts from. A lot of parts go into the rowing machine. It looks simple, but there's, you know, hundreds of parts. So it was a purchasing and supply nightmare. It was a customer service nightmare trying to deal with the backlog and yeah. calm people down. And um, yeah it was a very stressful time. And you know, not only that, people were working remotely and were trying to figure out how to be efficient working remotely. It was um, a pretty, pretty crazy time, but.
1: And you must have also seen a jump in um, virtual ERG competitions, uh, records being broken, um, people um, using them for uh, I know we did uh, mountain ranges. You know, people getting creative about like, oh, let's row around. You know, Mount Everest on yeah, on yeah. the rowing machine, and then of course doing crash bees virtually uh, and those kinds of concepts. And I think that yeah. really opened up such a world of global indoor rowing yeah. uh, that that really changed the landscape
2: quite a bit yeah. too. Yep, you yeah. can. Right now, uh, the little erg race online app you can set up a race for you know tomorrow at at noon and people anywhere in the world could join it you could row with them.
1: I think the Row studio, you know the new studios that have popped up like uh Row House and there's a whole like series of things kind of piggybacking on CrossFit, you know, making these group fitness environments um has just been really exciting to see and I'm
0: I just had uh, really one last question for you, although we could talk to you for many more hours, but looking back now on your business and your, your lives in the rowing world, could you have imagined in the mid seventies, early eighties, when you started testing your oars that today you really, as a business would be synonymous with rowing, not in only in the United States, but around the world? And what expectation do you think you had at that time?
3: Yeah. I, I know that, um, we thought that, uh, Dick and I would make oars for maybe two days a week, and yeah. then we could always get bartending jobs or something. <laughs> I mean, that was basically the start. Uh, I don't think we ever thought that, uh, the ore market would accept our product so you know so handily, or we didn't expect the ore market to get so big either mm-hmm. on a worldwide basis. One way of of exceeding your expectations, of course, is to have very low expectations. <laughs> and I think our thought about the uh, the business was, in fact, <clears throat> pretty minimal at the time we started. Mm-hmm. And there was quite a bit of luck or
2: being in the right place at the right time. It might be another word way of putting it, you know. I mean, think about it. Title IX started at 72, but it didn't really pick up momentum until at least mid-70s, about the time that we were starting to make oars, you know. So immediately, the market doubled, Mm. even more than doubled because, you know, you had schools that didn't have anything to do with rowing start rowing you know it wasn't just the schools that had rowing all of a sudden they had two teams a lot of schools didn't have it and and that kept snowballing all the way through you know so that was you know time was right there and then of course for many years we were the only ones carrying the rowing banner in the fitness world you know oh rowing is great you know i remember when we went to that uh Boston marathon trade show you know way back we said here's this is the old model a with the bike wheel and uh you know people didn't know it was just sort of off the radar screen everything in fitness was you know treadmill bike stair stepper whatever else but now you know rowing partly because of crossfit and just sort of time and and just things building up, you know, rowing as an indoor way of fitness is kind of mainstream. It's just as important in a, a fitness environment as treadmills or bikes or whatever, else, you know, else is out there. It's one of the major modes of indoor fitness now.
1: Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, I was a spin teacher for a long time and it has that same feel. You can be in a room of people doing a piece together. You can like, you do a spin class together. You don't do a treadmill class together. Like that's not, you know, like that would be, I guess you could, if you really yeah, want to have,
0: I actually have seen a an indoor running studio, but I'm not a runner. So I'm not sure about the benefit of that. But.
1: Um, well, we wanted to end the the interview with uh, a, fa- a favorite question of ours, because it always sort of evokes some great memories. And, and being pair rowers, you might have a different response to this, but, you know, hearkening back to the times when you've had a coxswain, what is your favorite coxswain command to give or receive?
3: I've got two. Okay. Sure, go and ahead, Peter. Our current coxswain at the head. I'm pretty sure he does this. I think he says if you're doing like, let's go for 10 strokes or 20 strokes, that he will count down and up at the same time. Does he do that, Dick? Or is it just.
2: (laughs) He has a strange way of, it's almost like a ventriloquist in a way. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) almost like you have two cocks.
3: It'd be like, 10. <laughs>
1: nine <feet>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah,
2: so, because you
3: know, some people gunner,
1: like it down. Yeah, some people like it down and some people like it up. That's yeah. awesome.
3: <laughs> it, and every time he does that, I said, Did he really do that? Or is it <laughs> my head that he did that?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the obvious one is that you've gained on the boat ahead of you, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the favorite one. That's the everyone's all time you have to make it happen
1: (laughs) yes i think that has
2: to be true it has to be true
1: oh yeah a lying coxswain (laughs) Mm -mm. nope Nope. (laughs) We we talk about that a lot. The people who are like 10 more strokes and it's really like 30.
0: This just happened to me as a rower in a boat last weekend with a coxswain who had up to that point called this amazing race. And then she says last 10. And, you know, we all go for it. Right. Those last 10. So I'm cranking it out. And she counts to 10, and then she's like, okay, five more. And you're I'm like, like no, that's not
1: how it works. <laughs> oh, yeah. You oh. always overestimate. <laughs> that
3: there was a a one race, I think, I, think, I think Brody called out 40 to go. Oh, oh, that's and then, mean. And then we get to the end of 40, <laughs> and I hear it under his breath. He said, where's the line? <laughs> oh.
1: I, I mean, it wasn't even close. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, you can't do that to people.
2: You just can't no, you gotta do it. you got to know ahead of time. That's one of those things you got to do a little preparation.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or or just stay in the moment and then be like, surprise, you're done. You know? Yeah. It's <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Well, this has been super fun. We've really enjoyed talking with you. So thank you for taking all the time.
3: Great. I hope you make it into something. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, Peter and Dick Dreisagegger, thank you one more time. And maybe we'll see you up in Boston in October.
1: Boston. Yeah. yeah, we'll see you there. Yeah. Yep, yep. Okay. To see photos of Pete, Dick, early oars and ERGs, and to get links to the people, clubs and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Steady State Podcast celebrates real life experience
0: from launch to coxie at every level. Search the archive at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash podcast topics or listen on your favorite podcast app.
1: Study State Podcast celebrates real life experience from launch to cockseat at every level. Search the archive at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash podcast topics or listen on your favorite podcast app.
0: Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady
1: State is more than a podcast. Oh, we should definitely tell them about Friday mornings when we get together for Coffee Chat. We talk about rowing, racing, technique, but we also deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership.
0: Yeah, we hope that you'll join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. West, 11 East, live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation.
1: Study State Podcast is a production of Study State Network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Tara and Rachel. Rachel also manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by the Free Harmonic Orchestra. Between us, we have 33 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises.
0: Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership.
1: And Rachel is the founder of Row Source, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events.
0: Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at seize the ore and Row Source.
1: Follow Study State Network on Facebook and Instagram at Study State Network and on Twitter at Study State Row. Visit StudystateNetwork.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. In two way
0: enough. That's one, two way enough.